Hey, Susie. <laughs> hey, Gigglebox. Hey, hey. La, la, la. Blah, blah, blah. Aren't you glad you taught that to me? So glad. Yeah. Everyone needs to know. Blah, blah, blah. It's like I've been edified. Welcome to So Psychological, the podcast where two friends investigate the world of psych. All the analysis, none of the professionalism. Welcome to So Psychological. I'm Lizzie Blake, and this is my co-host, Skippy Clementine. Oh, my darling, how you doing? Well, four score and seven years ago, I didn't exist, so I don't really know where I was going with that. Well, I'm glad you're here with us now. That's what matters. Yes, because we're going to be talking about Weekend Warriors. This episode is a fan favorite across the board. It's so good. Like, I fully understand why this is such a fan favorite. So shall we jump into a summary? Absolutely. All right. This episode begins with a flashback where Henry and young Sean and young Gus are in a field. The young lads have built a rocket, which they are ready to see soar. Now, Henry tells them that the first one to find the landed model rocket will be able to get a Sunday. While the other looks on with envy. Right. And so Sean and Gus, of course, race off to be the first. Of course, they only come back with a parachute. Henry has the model rocket because Henry knew a shortcut. In the present, we're actually in the past, where we're at a Civil War reenactment. Carlton Lassiter is the head of this reenactment because his ancestor was a key player in the Battle of Piper's Cove, where a nurse played by Sally Reynolds killed Confederate Captain Quantrill, played by one Nelson Poe. Now, in this reenactment practice, Sean, Gus, and Jules have all gathered to watch Carlton in his element. As one would. As one would. Unfortunately, after the practice, this Nelson Poe does not get up. He has been hit by a bullet right through the chest. What is mistaken for an accident... Sean seems to think there's something more going on because at the police station, Sean sees Juliet examining the victim's jacket and notices the exit and entry wound of the bullet right through the chest and says, there's no way this can be an accident. Now, he is determined to find out what happened. So he goes back to the psych office and he sets out the entire battlefield up in a beautiful diorama with all of his little toys, exactly the way it was on the field because of his photographic memory. And in my opinion, this is one of the coolest Sean memory scenes in the whole series. It's an amazing thing. The whole thing. thing is perfect. So what he notices though with this is there's only one person within range that could have made this shot, and that is George Cheslow. So they go to interview George Cheslow and find out that he even has motive because guess what, Nelson Poe? had an affair with his wife. But also, while talking to him, they find out the guy has eyesight problems. There's no way he could have pulled off this shot. 
We also learn that Gus's teeth are perfect. We do. Yeah. So now Lassiter comes in to arrest George Cheslow at the time. Sean and Gus know they've got the wrong guy. They decide to go undercover into the reenactment. So they go to a fellow reenactor named Griffin Mahoney, who happens to own a jewelry store and also supplies a lot of the equipment for the reenactment. And there they find the Sally Reynolds is an insurance agent who actually covers a lot of policies for different reenactors and including one for the jewelry store itself. Now, we also see later on, uh, this is the jewelry store where Henry decides to get a special gift for Sean, a unique gold watch with a special inscription, don't lose, Henry. Well, it was either that or kissy kissy. Yeah, that's just not going to go down. Anyway, so uh, they get their uniforms and they join the reenactment. Now, of course, Sean, the playa wannabe, <laughs> has a special little connection with Sally Reynolds. And that evening makes a move, but stumbles and falls down the hill where he rolls much to the similar place where Nelson Poe landed. And he looks up and he notices a tree. All of a sudden, some pieces start to click and he realizes the thing may not have gone down the way he thought. So he goes back and actually inspects the place in the daylight, finds the missing bullet as well as a Civil War button that, that must have been from the killer's uniform. And so he calls in the police, but they still believe that it must be Cheslow. Sean goes up the tree and with help, a little help from Gus knows what to look for, finds a notch to know, oh, this might be angled differently. Maybe Nelson Poe wasn't the original target. Maybe Nelson Poe was a victim of simply being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And the target was actually Sally Reynolds. So he calls in Juliet to go undercover so that during the reenactment, they can catch the real criminal red-handed but nothing happens. However, they do happen to notice a sewer grate, which leads them to the other side of the camp. It's a shortcut. That means anybody could have done it. But on the other side of the camp, they happen to find a coat with that missing button. Mahoney, the head of the jewelry store. Running to the jewelry store, they find there was a robbery in action. Mahoney and Sally Reynolds were in on it together. But Mahoney had gotten a little too greedy, wanted to cut Reynolds out of the action for the insurance that he would have recovered for the theft, as well as keeping all of the loot. The reenactors, they have them backed up. The criminal goes to jail. And we get to come back to 2006. So you want to talk about some Henry Sean father-son relationship stuff? The force is strong in my family. My father had it. I have it. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I want to talk about father-son relationship stuff. All right. Well, we get quite a bit of it here in this episode. Yeah. We, we get a lot of it, even though we get it in such like few scenes. Yeah. It's a very small amount of time, but but they're all played out really, really well. They really are. I think one of the things that we see, because of course the episode starts with the flashback uh -huh. and then end with the flashback, but we see a lot happening in that first flashback. Henry is teaching Sean and Gus more lessons. 
just in the way that he's teaching them, which of course is a plot device because it's tied directly to how they're going to figure out the crime later on. Yes. But there is an interesting thing happening as a father. He tells them to do one thing. Uh They go off and do it in the way that they think it should be done. Yes. And he comes back and he already has the rocket. Yeah. And to which Sean replies, you you cheated. You cheated. Yep. And of course, Sean would know because he has done the similar thing to Gus many times. Oh, so many times. Cheated in the way that they're supposed to play all the games. And so, of course, he accuses his dad of that. But his dad says, prove it. And I always thought that was interesting because he could have easily proven it. There's the mud on his shoes that uh, got, or that Sean actually notices. But I think what... Henry is alluding to is the fact that he can't prove it because the instructions yes. are what it was about. Yes, that that idea of um the letter of the law versus the the spirit of the law. The spirit of the law. Yeah. And so here in this moment, you see Henry is actually pushing pushing both of those forward, the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. That he's he did he did it to the letter of the law. Because he did not include, you know, stay on the path or whatever the the boys interpreted those rules to right. be. Um, but also is really, really reinforcing the spirit of the law concept as well in this same moment. Right. So basically, if they had listened to the instructions, they would realize all they had to do was find it. Yeah. The first one to find it. He didn't give any stipulations on how to find it. Yes. Now, they're used to playing games with stipulations, which is why, of course, that's cheating. But they can't actually prove he was cheating because if they go to the letter of the law, yeah, he wasn't. Now, it is beautiful because he does give them that second chance. Let's do this again. And so you get that sense that, of course, he's going to let them maybe hopefully have the Sundays. Hopefully get one. I hope so. You never know with Henry. You never know. And I do have to say uh, that when Sean says they get to look on with envy, like there's a part of me that feels like that that's, that that's a reference, that that's a quote. And so... I did spend some time Googling that. I didn't find anything. Everything I found like brought me back to this episode of Psych. Um, and so I don't know if like my Google is like, you're obsessed with Psych. And so I'm just going to give you Psych answers. Or or if it really isn't. And I'm just like imagining that it's some sort of reference. But there's there's like something echoing in my brain. That if makes it's not it a reference, like it it's going to make me wonder like if somewhere in your childhood, somebody else did that to you where they're like, of course, I'll win. And whoever or whoever wins gets to have the, the, that, the reward. Yeah, it 100% sounds like it, something it my could dad just, would say. It could just be a product of trauma. <laughs> <laughs> but moving ahead into the present is where we're really going to see the growth uh-huh. in this relationship, right? Because all of a sudden we see Henry and now he's on his own here and he's doing something you wouldn't expect Henry to be doing. No. He's in the jewelry store and he is buying a gold watch for Sean. Now this is something you would expect a father doing for a son. And we know Henry loves Sean. So in that sense, it, it's not so odd. But it is odd because Henry's not the most sentimental type, Mm-mm. or at least in expressing sentimentality. No. Yeah. He is sentimental, I think. And we, we learned that over the, the seasons 
in the way he keeps different things and looks back at different things and even holds on to memories. Yeah. However, in expressing that sentimentality, he's not that type. He's he's not. Uh, yeah, that was one of the things that I I feel like I noticed in that scene is you can tell that there's so much affection in Henry and and why he's buying the watch and his motivations and wanting his son to have this this precious gift from him. And yet when he puts the inscription on it, it's like the opposite of affection. Right. Like, so in the very beginning, when he's talking about even getting the gold watch, there's like this soft face. He's like talking about it being meaningful, like how it was that he has his. And so you get this like nostalgic kind of, oh, this is so precious. But then they go to put the engraving on it. And even the jeweler is like, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> you know? And even he signs it, Henry Spencer. And he's like, well, what else would I put? And and the jeweler's like, love dad? dad? And that is just like a no, no, yeah. no, no, no. And so that- Way too much affection. Now, and so that's a beautiful picture of how Henry is. But what I do think is really unique about it in this episode is we're starting to see Henry move from this kind of you know what, Sean? You know, you're older than yeah, 18. you're an adult. You're an adult now. You're going to do this. I may not like what you're doing, but go out and prove it yourself. Yes. And don't come to crawling to me when you need help, like how he always says. Oh, yeah. Even though he still always helps, right? Well, and even though he still wants to be asked for help. Right. Yeah. But in this moment, it, it almost seems like he's seeing Sean as that adult. Hey, I've, I'm recognizing you. I feel like you've kind of made it to this place where I can say, I want to pass this thing down to you. Yes. You know, these are the kinds of traditions you pass down when you say there's a, there's a, a milestone to be marked. You're, you're a man now, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, like this is something that was valuable to me in my adulthood. And I want to share that with you in your adulthood is, is kind of what this seems like. Right. So I feel like that's a shift. Yes. An absolute shift is happening with that. Yeah, I would agree. I also would to not to not to jump us into the next scene, but in the next scene, Sean has created the ruse to bring Henry out um, to borrow the metal detector, right? Because he wants to find the lost bullet. Yes, but the ruse is that he lost the watch. Is you see, Henry's actually letting Sean use. The metal detector and we learn from that scene that that's probably not something that henry does like it's not something that he it's it seems to be something that he values and wouldn't let somebody just borrow or use or you know and so he is kind of like maybe uh yeah you would imagine him going out and him operating it and being where do you want me to look or even at least saying well you need to take responsibility for this so you need to look but i'm going to be hovering over your shoulder yes micromanaging yeah something along move. those lines but he's i but at this point maybe he's just like reconciled this is my son this is who he is as an adult and so like he's coming to terms with this is him mm -hmm. and so he is he's he's seeing him on that adult adult level. peer level yeah and just kind of coming to terms with this is who he is. 
frustrating though it may be. And obviously you see him, he's sitting there with shoulders collapsed. Like, I can't believe you lost this most precious thing. You know, he even wrote don't lose as the inscription on it, which I think is brilliant because the one thing that was the inscription is the one thing that Sean uses as a ruse. As the ruse. I know. It's almost like, it's almost like Henry wrote the script for the ruse Sean, when he had that, he knew exactly what would get his dad's attention, what would motivate him, and how he could manipulate his dad into getting what he wanted. Yeah. <laughs> like, like Henry gave him the script. Yeah. And it was, it's pretty funny because like he doesn't, he just gets fed up. He, and he walks off, right? Yeah. <laughs> Whereas I think others might be like, you know what? You're not ready for this watch yet. Let me take it back. But he's already reconciled himself to the fact that this is who Sean is. And so it's a real shift. And we're going to be able to see more grow in that relationship because of this. And I think that's a really cool thing. Yeah. I, you know, uh, transitioning from a child, adult, father-son relationship to a adult, adult, father-son, or even just parent-child relationship can be really hard. It's really easy to not do well. And, and so even that, like there's, there's, there's these small little snippets that you get to see of how they're, uh, loving each other where they're at. And yeah. It's, it's really, really precious. Hey, Susie. Hey, Lizzie. I've got some cool fun facts for you today. Yes. I wanted to talk a little bit more about the cast and crew behind the scenes. <gasps> Yeah, we haven't done that much. We really haven't. And yet I they're love so that. amazing because all the things that we laugh at, all the things that we love, all these quirky little nuances, they're created by someone. Yeah. And I really wanted to take a look at that. And Weekend Warriors is such a fan favorite episode. So somebody genius had to be behind the works of it. Obviously. Right? Well, the writer of this episode was Douglas Steinberg. Now, Douglas Steinberg only wrote one other episode for Psych, and that was season one, episode 14, Poker I Barely Knew. That actually kind of makes sense. The humor in those two episodes are, they're so on point to me. Right. So he's not a stranger to Psych. He's actually a consulting producer on many episodes. However, they begged him to write an episode. Yes. And he did a lot of research because he wanted to be very in intentional about this episode. And I mm -hmm. think that's why it was so successful that things really mesh well. And, you know, even the names were chosen because they kind of fit with that civil war theme. And I thought that was really clever. Now he's actually known for being a consulting producer, not just on psych, but a producer on many things, Boston public, even going back. Do you remember Errol? No, you don't. I don't. Well, let me tell you, Sean and Gus would. They would definitely know Airwolf. Listeners, if you knew Airwolf, you have my heart because Airwolf was fantastic. It was back in the days of like A-Team, MacGyver. It's like in that type of genre. Okay. Airwolf was basically featured around this like combat helicopter, but it was a unique helicopter that was taken and used for special missions, kind of like cat, uh, Kit was used in Knight Rider. In Knight Rider. Okay. But I don't want to go so crazy on Airwolf because Douglas Steinberg only wrote a few episodes for that. But I'm saying his career goes all the all way, the way back. back. Yeah. And he's very known as a writer, as a producer, doing many things. And they begged him. 
uh, to go ahead and write an episode, even though he was producing. And he said, yes. And we have the genius of Weekend Warrior to show for it. Now, the director of this episode was John Fortenberry. This was the only episode that he directed of Psych. Now, he's actually known for Arrested Development. So again, someone who is known and so uh, respected in Hollywood circles. They just mm -hmm. really had amazing talent on this episode. Well, you can see, and we're going to talk about that here in just a few minutes. There's all those little tiny details, facial expressions. And I feel like so many of those types of details very often can come from a, a brilliant director. Right. And I think a lot of really cool shots, like they they tried to make unique angles, like looking down in the vault mm -hmm. and, and things like that. He's done episodes of This Is Us. He's done episodes of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, Two Guys, A Girls in a Pizza Place. I mean, he goes and, and all the way back, even back to The Kids in the Hall. Oh, wow. You know, which was a Canadian sketch comedy mm -hmm. show. So That one I did watch. So he's got a, a long history of uh, credits to his name. So some great talent. Now, speaking of other talent, we're going to look at some of the on-screen talent. We've talked before about the recurring guest stars, but we have some major ones here. We've got three I'm going to mention here. Now, the first one I'm going to mention is, of course, Claire Coffey. Now, she plays... Sally Reynolds. Right. This is the love interest of, of Sean here, um, who also turns out to be perpetrator. But now Claire Coffey has a unique connection to Psych in that she was on West Wing. Oh. Which we know Dulé Hill was on West Wing. Yes. Uh, so that was an interesting connection. Another interesting guest star is Peter Michael Getz. Now, he is the main criminal in this, and he is a very well-known face in Hollywood. He's done some remarkable things, but one of the things he's really known for, uh, besides this, the Father of the Bride movies, is he had an appearance in a film that is referenced in this episode. A great Civil War film featuring the great Denzel mm. called Glory. So the main criminal in this actually was in Glory, which is fantastic because I love it when they pull people from the very things they're giving homage yes. to, like in a way, yeah, and bring them in. It's very cool it's when they do so that. It's so fun. Now, the last one I want to talk about is John Ross Bowie. Now, John Ross Bowie plays George Cheslow. Of course, George Cheslow is the guy who's falsely accused. He's the dentist, right? Uh-huh. Now, most people would recognize him right away because he was in the Big Bang Theory. He played Kripke. Uh, some, some people might know him from Curb Your Enthusiasm. But if you listen to the commentary on the DVD set, you'll find out that John Ross Bowie was an almost Gus. Oh, wow. That he actually auditioned for the role of Gus. And although he didn't get it because they really wanted Dulé, I think Dulé was actually ca like cast for that. Like they wanted, hey, here's Gus. We want like, Dulé. Like they wrote Gus. I don't know Dulé that for a mind. fact, but I'm, I mean, who, I can't imagine anything else, right? Yeah. But I know that he, he did audition for Gu Gus and he, did very well. So they did use him as a stand-in when they were auditioning other people for other roles, simply as a stand-in to read lines with, even though he wasn't going to be Gus. 
at least that's what they said on the commentary, if I interpreted their comments correctly. And I thought that was fascinating. And they liked him so much, of course. They did want him to be included in the series. So they brought him in for George Cheslow. Now he has gone on because he he's he grew a lot of fame and attention through Big Bang and Curb Your Enthusiasm. He went on to more recently do a show called Speechless, which was kind of revolutionary because he played a parent to a special needs child who had uh, communication issues. Okay. And so there's a lot of cool things going on. Now, interestingly enough, they didn't have to do loads of costuming for this, even though they did... They showed up and the scenery was much more than they had prepared for. They were thinking small little field and they showed up and there was a whole reenactment happening. Why? Because they brought in actual Civil War reenactors who brought in their really? own actual reenactment equipment. Wow. Now, they, of course, pulled them up from Seattle because Canada didn't have the Civil War. And we know that this show was filmed in Canada. So they had to bring them across the border wow. to film this. Well, Seattle technically didn't have the Civil War either. No, but it is a part of a country that did. Yes, it did. So the reenactors came up and, and participated in that. And I thought that was really cool. So there was a lot of things going on behind the scenes that really just made this come together in such a special way and made it bigger than life in mm -hmm. some ways. Like even the cast and crew were saying on the commentaries how they didn't expect the reenactment scenes to be as big as they were. Oh, they were so fabulous. And so uh, I just think it's really cool just to see how much talent they're able to pull in both on the screen and off the screen to be able to make such a cohesive. Speaking of creating all of these things to make such a cohesive idea. Yes. This episode is just chock full of tiny little details. Yes. That all pull together to create one brilliant episode. Right. And, and they're like tiny little details, but they make a huge impact, even if they're subtle and subconscious. Yes. And the details are like some of them even propel character story forward. Some of them are just amazing details that got thrown in. Some of them are are just details that that make that draw your eye and actually create the story in a really really cool way. So let's spend a few minutes talking about those. Yeah, I would love that. So the first small detail that I notice pineapple snapple. <laughs> I love it. Like the the idea that they're that they're going to bring in a pineapple in every episode and and they're just sitting down, having a little refreshing break, popping open their pineapple snapple. I don't know why I think that that is so brilliant, but I really, I really do. The little pineapple snapple there in the in the reenactment, they're just having a little snack. <laughs> the details in the vault, yes, at Mahoney's jewelry store, are just so incredible. All of the memorabilia and the the buttons and the hardcores soak their breath in urine. That is so gross. That is so gross, but so true. And like those those details, it, it just makes it seem more real. Like these are real characters, real people that we're watching 
And that vault is stocked. It is so stocked. It's got one of everything. Like that is a tight space and they have a lot of stuff in there. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, they did a great job on that. So much memorabilia. It's incredible. The other thing, kind of little detail oriented, the diorama that Sean makes. Yeah. Amazing. So wonderful. The music that's back behind it. I, I looked a couple of times to see if I could find the name of the song that's playing. I love the song that's playing. It's got such a great drive to it while he's thinking. It's like, to me, it sounds like that's the song that plays in his head when he's thinking. Probably. Yeah. And, uh, and then just the details that he puts out in the diorama, like he's got a little, almost like a little He-Man guy. And then he's got a little army men and then, some of them are aliens and just all those little details. And I, I just love it so much. Well, even thinking about using the dry erase marker to like draw on the yes! surface. To like, write the names. and Yeah, like to draw the river. Yes. Like it's just like a, I mean, little detail. Yeah. And he cut out little cardboard, not cardboard, and um, little construction paper yeah, like, to make a trail. And, and, and pull, of course, they have loads of toys in there office so they can pull all the toys to make all the different characters yes because of course every office has loads of toys well yeah definitely army men and alien guys certainly every professional office has those (laughs) i may or may not have actual toys on my desk um but yeah i love that diorama scene it's so good well A couple things I really like, do you notice those little like um, facial moments that like Juliet has when Sean is scoping out uh, Sally Reynolds? Oh, yeah. Because there's all those little moments where Sean is like checking Sally out and, you know, like, you know, there's obviously something happening there. There's some some level of attraction. and, And Jules makes these little faces then you it's like is there a little jealousy is she like kind of annoyed with sean is is she like annoyed because of jealousy or or is it even like is she thinking like he's womanizing or, or that this isn't professional or that it's not professional but there's these little moments in her face that are just so fantastic but it shows that she's got a little bit more of an investment in what's happening beyond what is going on in the conversation. Yeah. And I think that's fantastic, especially relationally, how how these things will progress. I think it's so good. Absolutely. Well, and it because those looks leave it kind of a bit open to interpretation. Mm-hmm. Is, you know, is it all of the above even on those? Very likely. I mean, I don't even know if she would know what it is. No. I, I think there's definitely annoyance is in there. But what is causing the annoyance? I don't know uh, fully what what we could speculate or even if she could. But it's enough that she's not paying full attention to what's going on in the front of the scene. Yeah, absolutely. So another detail that I really liked is the, when Sean tricks Gus into getting his teeth cleaned and then possibly having a cavity filled at the dentist. His teeth are perfect. 
Yeah. But this is such a recurring this is such a recurring thing that you're going to see is Sean how Sean manipulates the situation to kind of get the best for him out of each time that they're going to what's the word I'm looking for? Snoop? Yeah. Each time that they're going to snoop somewhere, Sean is always going to put Gus in the chair, so to say. Right? Like in the chair or he's going to be the one who, you know, he's going to be the one who has to get his eye checked. He's going to be the one that has to get his teeth checked. He's going to be the one who gets Botox. He's going to be the one who gets the mark yeah, on his shirt. Every time. Or Gus is always going to be the recipient of whatever service that establishment offers. Unless, of course, it is a service that Gus would actually want and enjoy. And then Sean would be like, hey, I'm going to let you do the snooping this time because you all, you're you always saying that you want to do the snooping. Or if it's uh, an action that like Sean would think would make him look cool. Yes. Even if Gus wanted to or not do it. Yeah. Sean's always about the cool factor. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so speaking of Sean looking cool. Yes. Did you check out those mutton chops? Love the mutton chops. Little detail made a huge difference because he goes around wearing them like the whole episode. Oh, yeah. They're so fantastic. Hilarious. It's so great. And he wears them at, and, and he just like, he plays them off as if it's just a part of him. Like, this is just who he is. That's just who he is now. Like, he's he's a mutton chop guy, you know? <laughs> like, he's so good like at just making things seem normal. And that is really funny. That is hilarious. So speaking of also facial hair, another little moment uh, that it, I love is Lassiter's. You know, he has that whole like goatee, mustache, beard, weird thing going on. And, you know, to the point that they even make the joke, what died on his face? Oh, poor Lassie. And of course, he hasn't had the time to take it off. And Vic is like, uh, get that thing off your face. And he's like, well, I don't have the, and she's like, take it off. So he has to rip it off and he puts it in her hands. Yes. I love that. Like she, she even puts her hands up, but then when he puts it in her hands, she's got that look of like, what on earth am I supposed to do with this now? Right. It's disgusting. Like it's disgusting. So that has always been one of the things I have loved so much about this particular episode. And it was only just recently when I was listening to the commentary that I found out that that was ad-libbed. <gasps> the him putting it in the hands. Oh, that's so brilliant. That it wasn't actually written into the script. It was something that was like figured out and done once they were rolling. Well, and that Chief Vic stayed in character and was like, ooh. I know. Well, I mean, what else can you do if somebody's putting that into your hands but go, ooh. <laughs> But the other little things that I think make a huge difference um, actually are kind of tie into the fun fact where it's really about the direction. Mm -hmm. And the direction was just so genius. One of the things I loved was this transition in the very beginning. We have the flashback, right? Uh -huh. And they're shooting off the rocket. And Henry's like, hey, you know what? Let's do it again. And he shoots off the second rocket. And you see that rocket flying. And you see it landing in the Civil War reenactment. Yes. In the present day. 
Such a beautiful transition. Beautiful, seamless. It's just gorgeous. And of course, because that Civil War reenactment scene is so well laid out and it has uh, such a huge scope to it, relatively speaking for the set sizes for the show normally. Yes. It's just so beautiful because you get this like kind of panoramic view. Mm -hmm. I think that's just fantastic. It's a little thing, but it just pulls you into the story already. Well, and it transitions you from, you know, 1985 to 2006 to 1864. Right. Like it's such a beautiful transition. And, but we're already like, so engaged in it because it's also pulling us into a mid-action shot mm -hmm. instead of just a stagnant shot or uh, a sitting office shot. It's just, it's great. Another direction point that I thought was really lovely was <laughs> when Gus is, is getting uh, equipped with his uniform outfitted. Yes. So now... Gus would have had to have seen the outfit when he put it on, because I'm assuming Gus did dress himself. He is a grown man after all. Well, but the way they did the direction gives us this sense as if he's seeing it for the first time as we're seeing it for the first time. And it's done in this beautiful way. It's the full length mirror, but the mirror is actually tilted. It's not even a pan with the camera. The mirror is actually even tilted as well. So we get this shot at the boots. And as the camera is coming up with the pan, the mirror is tilting up so that we get the full then shot of Dulay. So it goes from the boots up to the top, to the top feather plume of that band uniform. And I think that's so great because it begins to look like, oh, He's got this military uniform. Oh, wait, wait, what? What? <laughs> we have this reveal and we have that expression on his face with that red feather on top. That is just perfection. Not quite the cherry on top. It's so good, that that shot, that angle. And uh, I just, I, I, I honestly, I love everything that has to do with that band uniform because he's sneaking around with it. And it's, he's still got that hat on his head. Mm -hmm. You know, no matter what he does, he's wearing that hat. And you'd think, well, if he didn't like it because he's upset because his band uniform, he would at least just take the hat off and try to fit in, right? Or just take the feather out of or it. Or just even the feather. But no, he goes around like fully garbed with the plume, like totally standing up. And he's like ducking in around corners and there's the feather, <laughs> you know, coming up out of the tunnel and there's the feather, <laughs> you know, it's hilarious. It's a little detail, but carried through makes such an impact. Mm -hmm. And I, it does bring me to this one scene, which is the last thing I kind of want to talk about as we're talking about little things. This is actually a whole scene, but it's so... Oh, how do I say this? It shows us so much about Gus and Sean and who they are, even as adults. Yes. Okay. And this is that scene where he's trying to convince him to join in to the reenactment, which is going to put him in that band uniform, right? Yes. He's there in the office. Of course, he's Captain Crunch and uh, wearing his own garb. And he's like, we should do this. And Gus is like, no. And, you know, what would that put me as, you know? And, and Sean is no, no. He's like, I was thinking 
glory. And the expression on Gus's face is so fantastic. You can see him picturing himself Mm -hmm. in the film Glory. And then he says, I was thinking Denzel. And he kind of stands up a little taller. And you can see himself imagining himself. I'm as awesome as Denzel. I'm Denzel. Yeah, Denzel is pretty fabulous. Denzel is amazing. And so, I mean, yeah. But you can see him becoming that. And I think it's so great because then he carries on through. And maybe that's why he continues wearing the full garb. Not because because he's no longer looking at it as a band uniform, but he's Denzel. Yeah. So we have this grown man who's like just playing as a kid, playing dress up. And you even hear it in the terminology or in the way that Sean speaks. He's like, you know, we'll be able to have hats and we'll, we'll have swords you know, Swords. so they're like they're how they were when they were little kids playing dress up, you know. Mm-hmm. And so it's like and you see this as a as something that's going to continue through the rest of the series, how they convince each other to do things is like to continue playing in their imaginary world yes. with each other. And I think that's a beautiful thing to have in their friendship because they know the reality of the circumstance. Yeah. But it's like. This is going to be a fun way to get us through that reality is to live it out. Because he's he, he's not Burton Guster in a band uniform. He's Denzel in glory. And I, I just think it's fantastic. And this is the one episode, the first episode where the show actually ends with a flashback. Mm-hmm. And that flashback scene is, of course, them as kids playing dress up running off into the future. Charge. Charge! I love it. Fun, fun, fun. Fact, fact, fact. Fun, fact. All right, Lizzie. So your fun fact was about cast and crew? Yes, it was. I am going to give a couple of fans a shout-out here. So in the episode... Carlton says his great-grandfather's name is Muscum T. Lassiter. Muscum? What kind of name is Muscum? It's a very common name of the era. So, I also was like, what is a Muscum? So, I looked it up. Every reference I could find to the word Muscum being a first name is a psych reference from a psych fan. So... On names.org, yeah. it's the only definition for the name Muscum says a submission from Missouri, U.S. says the name Muscum means, quote, a very common name of the era, which is the exact, exact quote. Gus quote from this episode. <laughs> I'm like, uh, yes, user from Missouri, U.S., you are brilliant and amazing. And a psych fan. And a psych fan. The other reference that I found to Muscum is another psych fan. This one is called ZPM and he writes family psych fic. He writes fan fiction. Okay. So this particular story that he's written here is called Murder They Wrote. It is loosely spinned on in uh, the series Murder, She Wrote. I read the first chapter. That was all I got a chance to read. But it was really very cute. And 
it all takes place in Muskem Falls, Michigan, <laughs> which not a real place. Um, but then it also makes like little references to like Muskem Sanitation and the Muskem Library. And uh, it's just, it's hilarious. Like he just picked this one little thread and, and sprinkled it all throughout this little story here. And uh, anyway, if you get a chance, go ahead and look up ZPM. Z-E-D-P-M, and uh, read, his, read his story here um, that takes place in Muscom Falls. So uh, so then I was like, well, what even is Muscom? What is a Muscom, yeah. What, yeah. So there is some reference to it being a last name. Um, I've, I found a couple of references to it being a last name. It's not currently a uh, a, a common last name. It doesn't seem like it all. Um, but it is a Latin word that means moss. Okay. I know. So then I thought, well, I'm just going to look and see if I can find a Muscom T. Lassiter or even an M.T. Lassiter. So I looked up Lassiters that were in the Civil War. I found there's a list here of 376 Lassiters that were in, that participated in the Civil War. There's an M.B. Lassiter. There's Moses Lassiters. Mark Lassiters. Did not find any M.T. or Muscom Lassiters anywhere. No Muscums. No Muscums. But I just, like, there's just something that I think is so brilliant about the fact that the references that I could find for mm -hmm. a Muscum, psych fans, which just goes to prove psych fans are the best fans. So Muscum would have maybe had to have been either, like, a family name or something that one of the writers was remembering or a totally made up name. I have, I have no idea. I mean, it does show here that it's a last name. It's spelled M-U-S-K-U-M, whereas in the episode it's spelled M-U-S-C-U-M. Interesting. Well, we do know that in the show, a lot of times the writers will name characters uh, after friends and relatives and give nods here and there to people they've known along the way. Um, I, it could be either that or it totally could be made up because if you think about it, musket. Yeah. I mean, Muscom Lassiter was firing a musket at one time, maybe. It is a very common name of the era. It is a very common name of the <laughs> era. That's fascinating. Uh, yeah. I, I, I did. I found so much joy in finding these these little Muscom references. You know, I would think that a really dedicated psych fan might be able to bring this name to the world and into circulation by simply naming some of their children. Multiple of their children? Yeah. Like Muscom. You would need more than one psych fan to do this, but... We could have like a whole generation of muscums all over. All over. And then it could be a very common name of our era. Of our era. Dare to dream. 
So we've talked a couple of times already about this episode, about things that we're going to see as being recurring themes. And I think one of the things we're going to see that's a recurring theme, Juliet saving the day. Yes. That is very common. Juliet rescuing Sean and Gus. Juliet rescuing Sean and Gus. Juliet saving the day. Juliet saving Sean and Gus's faces rhetorically and literally and literally Juliet being the hero absolutely yes this is definitely something we're going to see over and over again and I thought I thought we could talk a little bit about that today because in this episode she she plays a very big role once again in helping the boys get this case solved and closed right yeah she really does So we see, towards the end of the episode, we see Gus and Sean have stolen Sally Reynolds' costume. Mm -hmm. And Juliet catches them and and says, what are they, what are you doing? But we see this, uh, this wonderful scene of them, I think, coming to a realization of, of how often that she's going to rescue them. Like, you see them doing all of these things to protect her as well. Like he's giving her instructions, bob and weave, bob and weave. She's like, I did, I did actually go to the academy. I, I think I know what I'm doing. Or you could die. Uh, that's Gus. That's <laughs> Gus's helpful input there. Yeah. And then Juliet goes, goes out on the field. And of course the shooter's not there because he's actually committing another crime during this time, which is robbing his own vault. But this is something that I think we're just going to see over and over and over again throughout this series is how much Juliet plays such an integral part to the entire psych agency. Right. Well, we already saw in Spelling Bee how she went out on a limb to get the food tested. Yes. And so she's already taking these little steps that would help them. You know, so there's already that little bit of help, you know, where she's giving them that little bit of input, you know, a little piece of information on the case here, a little piece of information on the case there. Just enough to get by, but not enough to break any confidentiality because she actually cares about procedure. Yes. Uh, But she does see that there is a value to what they do. But she also does see that they are inexperienced people. They are. And so she does, I think, want to keep some of that private because she wants to protect them Mm -hmm. as well. So she values their help and she uh, can see the worth in what they do, but she is going to want to protect them. She has the training. She has the ability. And so she can come in and kind of fill the gap with the things they can't do. And, and how often she's able to fill that gap because she does actually trust either Sean's psychicness or detective skills. So, and then, and then there's, other, there's other little pieces that we see of the development of the relationship between the psych agency and Juliet in this episode as well. The sass, she sasses them back several times during this episode, which is just so cute. Um, even even he's like, do you have a hoop skirt? And she goes, I rent one. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then and then you already mentioned like the little the little glances. You can tell there's something at play there in right. Juliet's mind. Right. Where well, I mean, she can't let Sally outdo her. But we're getting we're getting to a point where 
kind of like we know that Sean can't, Sean can't do psych without Gus. Yeah. And Gus can't do psych without Sean. But I think we're getting closer and closer to a point of psych not being able to do psych without Juliet. You know, I think, I don't know. I think psych could do psych without Juliet. I don't think psych would maybe want to do it as much without her. Or maybe they would have just gotten shot in this episode and <laughs> and it would be a tragic ending to a series. <laughs> well, I mean, she does. I mean, there's so many times she does come in to save the day. Yes. I mean, but we have seen so many times where the where Sean is able to finagle himself out of a situation. Oh, absolutely. And we see him save the day often as well. Yeah. I think it is really interesting, though. Like, she does step up. And I think if she's stepping up in this case, it feels like she's stepping up because she has to. They're idiots and they're going to do an idiotic thing. Oh, absolutely. But we... It, it, that's like the the beginning of it. But even in the end, when the shot doesn't come, she's almost just as shocked because even though she's stepping up to do it because they're going to do something stupid and she has to protect them, she still believes what they're saying. Yeah. I, and that's why she's shocked that the shot didn't come through. Well, and I think that's part of why she feels like she has to do it. Like, I think a lot of other officers, if they had found out that they stole the costume and were going to, you know, they would they would put a stop to it right there. That they, they wouldn't be going, I will go in. They right. would be going, You guys are you guys are buffoons. We're gonna return the costume. And you know, mm-hmm. and I'll see if I'll see if Sally Reynolds wants to press charges. Right. Yeah. For costume thievery. You know, and so even at that, like I I I really do think that she is starting to play more and more of an integral role to to the, to the agency as a whole. Well, she's definitely a bridge between the agency and the police department. Oh, absolutely. Because even though Vic is willing to give the cases to Psych, it really is through Jules that they're able to get a lot of information and that they're actually able to even proceed with the information that they do find. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she is that kind of bridge that they definitely wouldn't have with Lassiter. And even if they had information, they wouldn't necessarily be able to take it to Vic until it's like, been dealt with until it's a final result until you can prove something with it. And so she is that link. And so being able to develop that kind of personal relationship, uh, even just as friends who can trust each other is important. Just like Lassiter has to trust her as a partner. They're going to have to trust her and she's going to have to trust them for them to be able to press on. Yeah. To work together. Because they have a working relationship as well. Uh, unofficial though it may be. Yes. And I think that's part of what strikes me is, um, is that the three of them are choosing to be in this, in this unofficial work relationship. Nobody's actually requiring them to work together as well as they do. Yeah. And I think one of the things that's really cool about this particular scene you're talking about, she's always kind of boosting them and helping them, she's going to need that support from them. Just like she needs to support Lassiter and Lassiter needs to support her, which she is always saying, Hey, I'm a part of this relationship too. This is a two way street, right? She has that conversation with Lassie. Well, it's going to be the same here. And we get to see a little bit of that in that scene. Yeah. in that scene. And, And we even get a beautiful visual of it because instead of Jules on like Jules up above, uh, or beside talking over to uh, 
Gus and Sean. Here she is. Uh, they're helping her in. And we have it almost like Gus is on one shoulder and, and Sean is on the other shoulder, like the little angel and devil or whatever. Mm -hmm. But, you know, whispering the advice and counsel into her ear. Yes. And so we get this like kind of visual triangle yeah. picture. And I think that's a really cool uh, direction point to emphasize how they're sewing back into that relationship to the point where even she says, hey, guys, push me. Yeah, I or think she kick, says kick, kick, kick me. me, kick me. Yeah, because even though she has had the training, and that just shows how much credence she gives to their theory. Yeah, that she has had the training, she knows what she's doing, but this is still a real thing. That and she's going out there without the backup that she normally would. Yeah, have. without the back, the rest of the and the Santa Barbara Police Department. These guys, <laughs> the ones that she's rescuing, are her backup. Yeah, so that's not very helpful. So she's like, "Yeah, uh, I might need just a little more." Yeah, kick. So one of one of my favorite parts of that scene because there's so much in that scene that's just so beautiful. How they're how they're talking to her. Um, you know, and how she how she even responds back. Like they they want so desperately to try to uh, protect her while she's actually rescuing them. Right. But you see, as they're trying to get the dress on over her uh, bulletproof vest, right? They get it zipped up, and then you see Sean actually reach around, grab her braided ponytail, and put it back behind her shoulder where it normally would be. And there's, there's just something that's so sweet about that gesture. I don't know if it's a familiarity or that, but there's, there seems to just be so much affection in it to me, whether that's like a romantic affection or a work affection that he wants everything to be put in place just right for her when she goes out to rescue them. Well, I'll be honest. I had never even noticed that until you replayed it for me and pointed that out to me. And I was shocked because I realized, you know what? I don't think I would even notice that if somebody did that, you know, like we wouldn't, if somebody didn't do that for me, like if they left my braid or ponytail hanging forward, I wouldn't even think twice. Yeah. And so it's like, it's such a subtle little thing. So we don't even, it's in it, but the way he does it is so it's subtle so natural. and it's so natural Yes. So it's like, like you said, it's that familiarity and it's that familiarity that makes you feel like it's even just like a friendship. There's a, like a, there's just a connection point where it seems like they just on a subconscious level understand each other Yeah, and, and understand each other's even physical presence that it's, that it's so passoverable even as a viewer to, to yes. watch. So it wasn't even until you pointed that out and I've seen this episode so many times and I never even noticed that. And it's so beautiful. Like when you replayed it, I was like, oh my goodness, it's just soft and considerate and not even like, it doesn't even play off as if he's thinking about it. It's just an automatic response. And I think that's beautiful. And I think it's like you said, it's telling to how in some ways natural they are together, mm -hmm. which is makes sense for how their relationship develops. Yeah. Well, and like you said, that you wouldn't notice if somebody left your hair in front. I'm thinking I would only notice if somebody moved my hair. Exactly. And, and, but then 
what I noticed, like, for example, if my husband came up and adjusted my hair, that would be such a natural movement for our relationship that I don't, I don't know that I would acknowledge right. it. And you see Juliet, it doesn't seem, there doesn't seem to be any sort of acknowledgement between either one of them in this moment. And I, uh, I, I think it's really precious. I'm not 100% sure if it was scripted or ad-libbed or... I don't even know if it was consciously thought of like as an action in the scene. You know, like I I, I, some, I even wonder that or if it's just that connection even in working together. I would love to know if Rodé like consciously thought about doing that. Yeah, I have a tendency to think most things, most actions are consciously thought out. I think so. I think he and or he and Dulé are very good about those things. And he and he in particular does so many physical ad-libs. Mm-hmm. And he does and from the stories that you hear from the set, he does them all different every time, which means that he's thinking about them. Yeah. So it, it does make you wonder, but he if if that's the case, then how amazing that he plays it so 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 subtly restrained yeah and it's so beautiful you know i and i i can see how she might not even fully notice it or have a reaction to it in the moment because she's here focusing on i got to get out there and she's got you know him saying you're going to be okay you know just you just do all these moves and she's got you're going to die <laughs> you know? on the other like, shoulder you know and so she's just got to stay focused but it's it's you know and in those moments of adrenaline you might not fully notice it's it's I think uh it's when you sit back and wonder you're like remembering a moment after kind of the shock dies Mm -hmm. down you're like oh wait a second you know yeah but like you said it's one of those things that you don't you would never notice except when it happens yeah and I think it's so beautiful yeah I think that that's a great touch in this episode it's another little thing but it's a huge thing All right, Susie, well, we're going to wrap this episode up. It has been a really fun one to talk about. Oh, such a great episode. I love so many things about this show. And I am hoping that uh, our listeners will send something in that they love about it, too. Oh, that would be amazing. Um, Send us one of your favorite little things about this episode, something maybe we missed. We would love to hear it and share it with everybody. Uh, you can always contact us at Susie and Lizzie at gmail.com. That's S U S I E A N D L I Z Z I E at gmail.com. But we're going to, before we finish up, we are going to do what we always love to do and finish with favorite quotes. It's just so quotable. So quotable. There's so many quotes. And in fact, we actually said so many, even in this podcast. Episode. Oh yeah. That's very true. So, Let's go to your favorite quote, Susie. My favorite from this episode is Carlton Lasseter, who says, oh, you found a pencil. Now we can all take the SATs. There you go. It's so, it's just so brilliant. He's like, he's had enough and Sean led him there to find a pencil. Yeah. I don't even know if you could take the SATs well with it. Like if it has the dirt on the on the tip, like you'd I mean, have to sharpen it. You could clean like, and sharpen, yeah. yeah. Oh my goodness, yeah. So many good ones. I had trouble picking because there are so many good ones, but I actually quoted a lot of them in the episode. Yes. But one that I love, that I have actually used in life, 
For your edification. For your edification? Edification is actually a word I use anyway. Yes. In proper context. And um, for your edification just makes it more fun. <laughs> so where this shows in the episode is Lassiter uh, is t- talking to Sean. He's like, for your edification, the reenactment of the battles. And Sean stops him and says, edification? Yeah, edification. Is that legal? Like in public? Public, public edification? edification's legal? Yeah, right? Like public edification? Well, later on, Sean is the one to say, for your edification. And I think that is something that we should always use. I concur with your assessment of that. Thank you. I needed your concurrence. <laughs> I feel edified by your concurrence. We we just we love this show. If you guys have anything that you want us to talk about, reach out to us on uh, any of our social media platforms. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, and Instagram. Instagram. So reach out to us and let us know anything we missed, anything we're getting wrong, uh, or anything you want us to talk about. And uh, we will see you next week for our aftercast, our episode six aftercast. We might have some weekend warring ourselves. Let's hope not. I don't want to fight with you. I don't either. Okay. But we could use swords. (gasps) I do like to use a good sword.